0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to For What It's Worth podcast. I am in between films. No, I'm not in between films. I've already made two films today, back to back, in like one take record time. That's my life at this point. I don't have time for making any kind of intricate film. They're all pretty basic at this point, but I have a lot on my plate. You can probably hear in the background the fan running on my laptop. My laptop right now is the same temperature as the surface of the sun. The windows are open. There's fans on trying to keep this thing cool. Hopefully it will not explode and take off the right side of my face. But who is this podcast for? Well, I've got a couple of people who it's for. Anyone who has camped at Yosemite. So I didn't know all these years. I thought Yosemite was pronounced Yosemite until... The Stable Genius came along and, uh, and let me know that it's actually Yosemite. So if you've camped at Yosemite, this podcast is for you. And anyone who also thought that Old Faithful was at the Grand Canyon, that's, uh, maybe you can see it from the Grand Canyon. Doubtful, but uh, again, Stable Genius checking in, and uh, that means Stable Genius 2, American Public Zero. And this is also for anyone who spent their COVID relief check on a spoiler for their 1983 honda civic if you took that money and you made a homemade spoiler for a stock 1983 honda civic you know who you are then this podcast is for you welcome aboard our hero of the week is no longer with us sadly is author journalist pete hamill pete hamill was considered what would the something of the Burroughs, the bard of the Burroughs. i think was his nickname if you don't know pete hamill and don't know his journalism and his books, he was a New York legend. The amount of, of copy that he put out in a lifetime is pretty staggering, and if you don't know about Pete Hamill, you should look him up, and you should get, try to get your hands on anything that he's written over the years. Really remarkable uh, history in journalism and, and writing. The question of the week, and uh, this is a good one, and that noise you're hearing is the feedback from my phone, which is, just got done cooking a ham, by the way. How much fun would it be to party with Jerry Falwell Jr.? I mean, how many times is this guy going to get caught in some sort of weird party atmosphere? And I'm thinking, like, no one told me that Liberty University was a party school, and no one told me that organized religion, organized Christianity, was this much fun. Because if they had told me that a long time ago, I might, you know, I might be more a part of the church. Because that guy knows how to party. I know he's taken a step aside, but you know what? I have a sinking suspicion he'll be back. And also, the second question of the week is, is Delaware even a state? Is Delaware still a state? I've never met a single human being from Delaware, ever, at any point in my life. I'm starting to think it's actually just filler in that part. Like, I don't know. Is it still real? Please let me know. All right, points of the week. We've got a bunch here. They're all over the place. And I've got another call here coming up in a few minutes, so I'm going to have to uh, kind of be quick with this, and, uh, and I have no time in the rest of the week. The point number one is, I think, very important, and I'm kind of making light here, but it's true, is, and this is about the American left, the political left in the United States, of which I guess you would say I'm a part. I'm sort of reluctantly a part of the, West, the left because I think our entire system is completely and utterly flawed. I think I have decades and decades and decades of evidence to back up my point of view. I'm not one of those people that looks out and says, gee, I guess this is all we have and we can never change it. Same thing with healthcare. I don't believe that. I think our, our political system needs a definite overhaul. I think corruption is down at the DNA level of politics, regardless of party. But I've noticed something about the left, about supporters of the left, which is they are very, very sensitive. And so twice in the last week, this has happened which is I personally, and I'm not a doctor, I don't know for sure, I'm just making an observation, is it seems to me that Biden, Joe Biden, might be suffering a little bit of, of cognitive decline, right? I've heard him talk a few times where there were moments where I thought, hmm, seems like he's kind of misfiring a little bit. Uh, and so I, I made this point to, to uh, several people that I know, and they immediately went crazy and then accused me of voting for Trump. So it wasn't just like, you know, well, I I disagree, you know, I'm not sure he's suffering. It was, you're an a-hole, you're part of the problem, and you Trump supporters, they have absolutely the thinnest skin of any group of people I've ever seen. And here is the problem with that, is that the left, you better toughen up, because what's about to go down in the next two months is going to be the most inhumane, uncivil political battle in the history of our country. Trump knows there are absolutely no rules left. He can do anything and say anything, and he can absolutely get away with it, and there is not a single person within the right party, in the Republican Party, that is ever going to question anything he does or says. How do I know that? The last four years. And it's gotten progressively worse and worse and worse, and not a single person steps up. Now, you can throw Romney in there if you want, but talk about a feeble little whimper. He has no power, and Trump just crushes him every time he comes out and says anything, so that's not right. I think, for example, the left, there was some there was someone, I think they're on the East Coast, where someone made a move recently to completely abolish the NRA. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you do that now? Why on earth would you rile that base of people? Now, the NRA looks as if they're going to collapse on their own. They're, they're not in good standing right now. There's a lot of internal strife. They have a lot of uh, subscribers and members of that group who are not happy with the leadership. So they're already teetering. If Biden wins, then do that. Then go after the NRA if that's your mission. To do it now just to me shows a complete sense of disconnect with the general population in America and also the, the political climate right now. It just doesn't make sense to me. But my main point with this is you've you've gotta toughen up if if someone says it questions whether it's AOC or or Biden or Kamala Harris or whoever you can't immediately accuse them of voting for Trump or supporting Trump. It just makes you look bad and fragile. So I'm going to vote. Whoever is on the on opposite the ticket of Donald Trump is who I'm going to vote for. They can, now, am I, am I thrilled that it's Joe Biden? No, I'm, I'm not thrilled anytime our two choices are two 80-year-old white men. Right. That's not that to me is representative of the old ways of politics. I'm looking at progressive countries around the world who have multiple parties, who have younger candidates, multiple parties that are working together. And then whoever wins turns back around to the parties that were defeated and says, let's work together. That is called a political common sense movement. I have absolutely no hope that this will ever work here in the United States. We are too radicalized politically. And I don't use that word lightly. I think radicalization is an absolutely apropos word for this scenario, whether it's the left or the right. I have friends who are blinded by both sides, and they can't see straight anymore because they're so radicalized by the party. It's disappointing. I'm not really sure what's going to break that chain. And here's the other thing for the left to, to consider, and I don't really know if there's any good solution out of this. What if Biden wins? Hopefully, Jesus, hopefully he wins. So then what he's inheriting one of the most dismantled, broken political apparatuses we have ever seen. It will take decades to undo what this administration has done decades if there's any chance at all. So Biden wins he comes into a system that is in absolute and total disarray and by the way don't don't be surprised if if Trump loses and that administration just basically uses the scorched earth mentality when they leave office to break and destroy as much as possible. Because they're gonna every single thing that he's done wrong, they're gonna blame Biden for. They did the same thing. With, uh, you know, Obama took the blame for for Bush Bush Jr. and and Biden's gonna get slammed. So the Democrats here might be looking at a long term headache because if if he, if he inherits this destroyed system and four years later it's still in disarray, the Dems are in major trouble. So again, can we just have a third party? Like, let's have the Common Sense Party. And I'll design the green zipped-up jumpsuit that we'll have with patches on the sleeve. It'll kind of look like NASA, the Salvation Army, and uh, I don't know, and a custodian's you know jumpsuit all rolled into one. I can totally design that. Okay. Point number two. An update. I'm sitting here in, in my second desk in my office, and and literally six inches from my nose is a stack of AG23 boxes that were that I'm getting ready to send out. So I think I made this point a couple of weeks ago. The U.S. Postal Service has been bad for quite some time. I had my first round of AG23 packages that went out. And by the way, these are going to my database. And for for those of you who out there who don't know what I mean by that, and even for those who are contributors, this is something that I always viewed as a perk for contributors. And I'm not sure whether or not people really thought about that or it really made any relevance to them at all, but I'm going to tell you why I think it's important, and I'll give you some evidence of that from this week. So I've been sending AG23 copies out in gray uh, clamshell boxes, and inside is a thank you note, a t-shirt, and a zine in a, a slipcase. My database is sacred. I've built it over the last 25 years. It has names of people from finance to industry to art to publishing, curation, et cetera. It's a bunch of really high-level people that I've met over the years. I have a personal, personal relationship with them. So I'm packaging these up one at a time with a handwritten note and, saying, and sending them unannounced to these people and saying, hey, this is a project I'm working on, thought you might like it, hope you're well. So the first round of these went out, no problem. And the second round, we all kicked back by the post office. And my wife took the packaging in initially, had someone at the post office look at it, verify it, no problem, ready to go. The first batch goes out, no problem. Second batch gets all stopped. They all get kicked back. They end up on my patio. My wife takes it in again. Two people at the post office say, this is absolutely fine. This should not have been a problem. This should not have been kicked back. Third person comes in, and he has an ax to grind. And he says, nope, not going to allow it. And the other two are like, why? It's fine. Nope, not going to allow it. So this person is the one who, who kicked everything back. So I said, okay, fine. So I go back, and I find another shipping method, which is twice as expensive. And that's what I've been sending out. And they've been taking way longer than they're supposed to. So I'm overpaying for every single package that goes out by a long, long shot. And some of these are taking weeks longer to arrive than they should have. But what am I going to do about it now? And when that, with them ripping out postal boxes all over the place, you know who knows how bad this is going to get. But here's the positive part. So yesterday alone, I got emails from one of the best book packagers I know one of the book, best book editors I know, one of the best graphic and overall designers that I know, and these people are scattered all over the place, and two of the best photojournalists in the history of American photojournalism wrote me and said, wow, what is this? Um, two of these people called me and said, is there any way that we can have a phone call because I want to know more about this and I want to know the history and the story and the methodology and, and basically the direction that you're going. And one of the people wrote and said, how do I get in the isu- the next issue? So think about that. These are some of the best creatives I've ever met. And they now have these in their hand. And they're now looking at the work of these contributors. And to me, that was a huge perk. And I've only gone through about, I would say, a little over half of the 100 people that I'm intending to send these to because, again, the post office just really slowed everything down, and plus my workload now is exponentially what it was a few weeks ago, so I'm very, very busy. A lot of them I'm delivering also to people in person here in Santa Fe. This town is loaded with some of the most coo- the coolest people, talented people, and there's a bunch of organizations here in town that I want to get AG23 to that I just don't have a personal contact with yet. Uh, there's a place called the Lannan Foundation. There's a place called Santa Fe Institute. I would love to get one of these in there and just meet some of those folks because they're doing really wonderful projects. And I think they would be interested in this and potentially might lead to, to some submissions in the, in the future. So that's my AG23 update. Number three college students are dumb and self centered in a completely unique way that is very reflective of our time. Let me repeat that college students are dumb and self-centered in a really unique way, reflective of the technology of our time. I know that might sound harsh, and I'm making an umbrella statement, but I know with certainty that I am right, because you know how I know that? Because I was once a college student, and I was so dumb, and I was so self-centered in a completely unique way that was reflective of the technology of my time. Because college students are partying now. They're going to frat parties. They're spreading COVID. And on the surface, you're like, Jesus, what are you thinking? Like, why would you ever go to a frat party? And if you did go to a frat party, why would you not be in a head-to-toe hazmat, zone 3, cat 5, level 10, you know, uh, hazmat suit? But no, they're partying, and they're like, I don't care if I get it. And like, the public is like, oh my god, these, these kids are paying to go to school. These institutions are taking their money. That seems like a crime in itself. But I was once a college student, and I was just historically dumb and self-centered. I mean, I may or may not have been involved in a brawl at a football game. After watching "Enter the Dragon" in the dorm room," there may have or may not have been Margarita's involved, and there may not have, or may or may not have been, someone named Jim, Doug, Dean, Dave, Dan and Dean all of my friends name oh, wait, Jim, Jim was the loner. The, the one non-D named person, maybe or maybe not. We ended up on the wrong side of the football game, and maybe or maybe not. Maybe Jim thought he was Bruce Lee for a minute and tried to kick Dean in the head, missed, and hit a third party, or may or may not have hit a third party. And the third party member may or may not have become incensed. And then Dean, not realizing what had happened, decided that maybe he wanted to kick Jim in the head. And maybe he thought he was Bruce Lee for a second. And maybe he did like a spinning wheel kick and missed and hit the same third party, which may or may not have set off a brawl. So what I'm saying is... There is potential that I was just as dumb and self-centered as college students, and I think one of the beauties of being in college is that you are able to express your stupidity in unique ways. And you may think that I'm bagging on this and I'm joking, and I, there is a little bit of joke in there, but it's true. That's one of the purposes of college is to experiment and to figure out the right way and the wrong way to do things. So going to a frat party now and spreading COVID is one of the most selfish, idiotic things you could possibly do. But it's also completely understandable if you've ever been in the college environment. And by the way, this runs in my entire family. Father kicked out of four universities. Brother, not exactly the world's best student, but was really good at partying. Got arrested. I got arrested. You know, it runs in the family. Whatever. We still turned out relatively pseudo, you know, normal with no—I no, was never convicted. Or maybe I was convicted, but I plead it down. I don't know. I I got arrested for something I didn't even do. So that's a whole nother story. Okay, Uh, let's just have a little quick look here. I want to bring this up. I'd gotten away from it, right? I've gotten away from YouTube using softcore porn to sell everything. And I initially tried to deny that. And I only listed the topics that were being softcore porn was being used to sell on YouTube. And there were no more than like 32,000 and then i finally admitted okay forget it you know people are selling covid with softcore porn it's out there it's on youtube you can find it it's shocking but also absolutely worth every second of your time you know forget about work forget about your family just keep on youtube and i also got away from talking about facebook and instagram and these networks and what we know about them we know that facebook is working again in the election they're a vehicle of, of many, many outside factors who are spreading disinformation. We know that. Facebook has taken a lot of flack in the last couple of months. It has not even, even though there have been articles about lost business and this and that, it has not phased the general public whatsoever. So just in the last week, the story, three stories, there was Facebook is too big to fail, and if it goes away, there will be, quote, grand and sweeping harm to society based both financially and societal, meaning that people are so emotionally invested in the platform, if it was to go away, there would be ruin left behind, not just financial, but uh, emotional and societal. That, If that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what, what could. That to me is, is is as terrifying as the virus that's spreading. Because in a way, that's what Facebook is. It was and started as is a virus, a social virus that took over. The same could be said for Instagram. I think Instagram is even a more destructive uh, platform right now. The other thing that came up that this same week was um, the fact that there is a denial algorithm. So there's a part of the Facebook algorithm is promoting Holocaust denial, and again, it's so weird. There's so an, so much anti-Semitic. Noise coming out of that platform and that in the leadership, and it doesn't make sense to me. It's just, just such a wild, horrible transgression. And again, they know they're almost like Trump, where they kind of know that it doesn't matter what they do or say. You know, today they took down some QAnon uh, websites, 10,000 sites. That is a drop in the bucket, and it should have happened a long, long time ago. These platforms, you know, Instagram being the fave of the white nationalist groups, again, if you're using these platforms, there is no way to deny being part of the problem. You know, we all make excuses. I might, in fact, have to, you know, submit work to other social media channels in in the future. I don't know. I mean, if that becomes part of my job, I have to weigh how bad... You know, they, these folks need that or whatever. We're all in, in this sort of compromised scenario. Now, I deleted all my accounts a long time ago. I have no intention of ever having accounts on Facebook or Instagram ever again. I'm so much happier not being on there. I have so much more time. Like I said, I did two complete YouTube films already today, which was to concept, write, film, edit, export, and upload. I did that, and that's quite a bit in addition to all of the blurb work that I had to do on top of it. So all the meetings, all the planning, all the calls, all the paperwork. I wrote blog posts, and now I'm doing a podcast because I'm not wasting my time on social media. So if you're on there and you think that this is something you absolutely have to do, okay, well, then you have to make decisions. But otherwise, why would you still be on there and be part of the problem? It's mystifying. Write in. Let me know. I'm curious. Okay, number five. uh, This week, I saw two brand big brand campaigns. Big ones that had everything in place. They were actually the way that they were delivered to me was was nice. It was strategic. The design of the delivery was nice and strategic and beautiful. And I and it caught my eye. And I thought, wow, the design is cool and the delivery is cool and this is great. And then I saw the photography. And I was like, oh no. Oh no, 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 no. Please let please God do not let this happen. The photography was bad. It was just Instagram. You know, it was just that content that sculptured, perfected everything you've seen a thousand times over. It was landscapes and specific color and felt hats and every single thing you've seen 10,000 times. And in my head, I thought, is this really where we're at? That we're all in the same funnel? Like we're supposed to be creative. We're supposed to be pioneering. We're supposed to be risk takers. We're supposed to be cutting edge creatives. And yet everyone's falling into the content scheme. And I know exactly what's happening. It's their it's their marketing team. It's the data analytics people saying, this is what people respond to. This is what we're going to do. But let's let's look back on advertising over the years, right? Advertising campaigns, there's a lot of one, there's a lot of advertising campaigns that fall flat and I think the Super Bowl is a great place to look. You know, everybody talks about the Super Bowl. The game typically sucks, but the advertising is why a lot of people tune in. And over the last decade for me, there have been, it's just been a steady decline. And I don't know why. The costs are going exponentially through the roof, but yet the quality, every year there's maybe one or two that come out. And I think print advertising is very similar. And I think if you go back to the 60s and 70s, and even 80s there were so many more pioneering ad campaigns where people just like stopped in their tracks and said wow you know this is so different and so interesting and i hardly ever see those anymore hardly ever and i'm looking around i mean i'm exposed to a lot of brands and a lot of messaging and it's very rare and so this week when two more arrived and i know the kind of team and and personnel power meetings budget behind what are behind these campaigns. I have a pretty good idea because I've been working in a marketing department for 10 years. And so it's just like disheartening to go, God, this, this all looks the same. And look, I'm not, I'm not immune to this. Occasionally, I will find myself thinking about making a film, for example, on YouTube, and I'll think about it, and then I'll question why I was thinking about making that style of film. And I think to myself, why would I do that? Because everybody else is already doing that. Why would I not like go out and take some time And really just sit down and say, what is it that I actually really want to make? And then just make that. So I hope we sort of fall back into the risk-taking world of advertising and creation. But I don't know. I might be holding my breath. Okay, point number six is about YouTube analytics. So I keep getting these emails saying that my payments are being blocked. Um, Apparently, I'm supposed to sign up for something so that they can actually pay me for my YouTube films. I really don't have – I don't care about that. I'm never going to make any real money on YouTube. So – I guess I have to sign up so I don't keep getting those emails. Uh, but I, what I love about analytics on YouTube is that they're pretty good. They're pretty decent, and you can sort of see behind the scenes about what people are watching and how long they're watching and all the different minutia. And what's amazing to me, and the, one of the reasons why I like like making really long films, is because everybody tells me not to do that. You know, they said, "Oh, you can't be, you can't delete your social." Yeah, you can. Don't you know? Everything has to be two minutes or less. No, it doesn't. You can do a forty-five minute film. Why not? But what's amazing is how many people tell you they like your films after only watching like three minutes of it. a Three minutes of a 40-minute film or a 30-minute film, and they're writing comments, but they actually didn't watch it. It's a its a thing. It's like Twitter hitting a like on Twitter without reading a link or actually watching a film. Uh, and again, I think that's the state we're in. It's kind of hilarious to me, but then also kind of sad. But um, YouTube analytics are pretty, pretty interesting. And for those of you out there who don't have YouTube channels— it's worth doing just to experiment with it and to learn the back end and to learn, you know, maybe bits of film production and all that kind of stuff. It's been it's been interesting for me. I don't know if it's going to last, but uh, for now, it's good. Uh, okay, this is something I need to address again. I've talked about this before because I keep getting asked all the time, which is kind of questions about why I'm not famous or why. I'm not published more or why I'm not well known or why I don't have more subscriptions and followers. And even if you look at my YouTube channel, there's people that have written like, oh my God, why does this guy only have whatever X amount of followers, blah, blah, blah. The truth is I don't care. And I don't mean that in a flippant way. This goes all the way back to the time I picked up a camera and I started working in the newspaper industry. Newspaper photographers are notoriously competitive with one another. And if there's another paper involved, then they're really competitive. I've seen it drive certain people really to do remarkably unethical things to each other and to other photographers. I've seen it. I've watched it. I've heard it. It's staggering every time you see it. But the competitiveness really takes over with people. I never had that. I never had it going back to the time I was a kid. I raced bicycles as a kid, BMX, and I figured out very quickly that if you won the race, you got some claps and you got some accolades. But if you really wanted to get claps, you did you went for big air on all the jumps and you did crossovers and like, you know, tabletops and all that stuff. And the crowd loved it. The single largest applause I ever got racing my bicycle was when I purposely ran over the kid that nobody liked. There was a kid who was sponsored. He had super trick bikes and sew-up tires. He crashed in front of me because obviously he was way ahead. He crashed, and I had a choice. I could bunny hop him, I could go around him, or I could just drill him. And for whatever reason, I decided to drill him, and the crowd went crazy in a positive way. So I never cared. Same thing with newspaper photography. If my work was published, great. If it wasn't, I didn't really care. And the same applies today. Most of the projects I do, you're never going to see. I do a ton of writing that you're never going to read. Um, it doesn't matter to me. It's not something that fuels me. I have my little internal fire is burning all the time, and I just constantly put stuff out, but I'm not looking for accolades from other people. It's just not something that I'm taking time for. Okay, I've got a lot of questions This this point number eight about uh, Kamala Harris. The new VP uh, nominee for the Democratic Party in the 2020 American political election. Man, is it going to get ugly. The first thing I thought, and I was hoping he would pick her, I really was, Um, because, and this tells you how far the rest of the political establishment has fallen. My first thought when he picked Kamala Harris, you want to know what it was? My first thought was, finally, someone who can speak. That's it. I don't think Biden is a particularly good speaker. Trump is the single worst public speaker I've ever seen of any public official at any level, and Mike Pence is horrible too cuz he just gets up and like parrots, you know, propaganda for Trump. He's not, you know, tr- tr- Pence can put sentences together, but he never says anything. He just gets up and says this is the greatest administration in the world and we've done more and it's all the same BS that we've heard for 4 years. Kamala Harris knows how to speak and she is going to tie Mike Pence in knots, because uh, I've watched her films where she's deposing Bill Barr, who's a total crook, and, uh, and a few other folks, Brett Kavanaugh, again, another squirmy, slimy situation that was horrible, and she turned them inside out, and for me, it doesn't matter political party here, let's throw that out the window, someone who's in politics needs to be able to speak publicly it makes a huge difference regardless of what party you're associated with when you represent america and you go out in the world and you're negotiating and you're having tough conversations and then you're getting up in public and making speeches at places like the u.n or the paris climate agreement which of course you know we're going to bail on all of these things it makes a huge difference when someone is not only a, a, a powerful speaker but an eloquent speaker we have not had obama was pretty good um Clinton was good. I mean, anyone is good compared to what we have now. This, this guy is the single worst public speaker I have ever seen. Even going back to my speech class in college as a freshman at San Antonio College, I had to take speech class and people were terrified, right? If you're a freshman in college, you're totally awkward, you're paranoid. Everyone is looking at you. you're petrified of what you look like and I'm wearing like baggy parachute pants, white high tops and an isod shirt with the collar up. I look like a train wreck, but for whatever reason, I could speak publicly. I had no fear, and I felt this sense of total control sitting in front of that classroom, knowing that I could emotionally turn people inside and, out, inside and out, depending on what I was reading. And so it never bothered me. But there were kids who were literally shaking up there, and they could still put it together better than Donnie. So I'm just glad that we finally have, of the four, we have someone who can actually get a point across. So I'm excited about that. It's been, it's been four years of not having that. Okay, uh, let's see here. I'm going to skip a couple points here. Point number 10. When's the last time you watched Top Gun? Damn it, be honest. Don't, don't deny that you've watched it 35 times in the last year. Because it's either on Amazon Prime or Netflix all the time. Because it is, it is a life spring. It is a godsend. It is a glorious well of cinematic bliss, if you will. So I re-watched it recently. Now, when, I, when this movie came out, I was in high school, and you know everybody, of course, wanted to suddenly become a naval aviator. Just the biggest bunch of rejects you've ever seen. All my friends and everyone's like, "I'm going to be a naval aviator," and I'm like, "No, you're not. You're not going to even probably ever be in a plane. You know, you're going to be in, working on the farm, and you're never, and that's it." And uh, the other thing that came out of the movie was not just the "I want to be a naval aviator," was the Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle suddenly, everyone in high school wanted a Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle. I believe that was a 900cc Kawasaki Ninja. Now, 99% of these people should never, ever have been allowed anywhere near a motorcycle, let alone a Kawasaki Ninja 900, because they were going it was not going to end well. So what would happen is, suddenly, these bikes started to show up in the parking lot at school. I went to a rich kid's school, and when we played our rival in football, they called it the Gucci Bowl. So anyway, these bikes show up. You're not supposed to leave campus during the middle of the day. They, supposedly, there's a deputy dog running around trying to corral students, but I never saw him. I don't know where he was. So kids would go out at lunchtime. All the kids have spilled out into the front yard to get out of the recycled air in the building, and we're all sitting on the grass. And these kids would get on their motorcycles, and they would go. They would drive down the road and then turn around and come back by the school at like 110 miles an hour. No helmets, two-lane road, stop-and-go across the street, school buses, probably the dumbest, single most dangerous move you've ever seen in your life. And they would do it every single day. And I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And how do I get a Kawasaki Ninja 900? That is all I could think about. I want a leather jacket. I want Ray-Bans. I'm never wearing a helmet. I'm going to be a naval aviator and I'm going to get this motorcycle and I am going to peg it anytime I can. Now, the sad part of this story is apparently, and I did not see this but one of the kids who bought the Kawasaki Ninja 900 had his girlfriend on the back and was uh, trying to probably trying to act out the Kelly McGillis scene where they're driving along the the port in San Diego at night, and there's like that nice poppy like Kenny Loggins music in the background. There's a blue gel on them and they're backlit, and he's sitting backwards on the motorcycle, or maybe she's sitting backwards on the motorcycle. Anyway. My guess is that these two high school kids were trying to reenact that and had a little spill on the highway at high speed. And in at that time on the median in San Antonio, there was a concrete wall and there was a chain link fence on top of it. And apparently there were parts in the chain link fence. So um, again, I did not witness that. I did not know these people, but apparently it ended bad. The point is Top Gun is needs to be mandatory on your viewing list coming up and apparently there's this another one they're coming out with which um you know it's probably going to be decent now because special effects are so good and camera techs are so good they've probably strapped these uh cameras on jets and that's going to be pretty interesting but my god if you're a photographer if you're not buying a 40 blue gel right now you're missing out and by the way backlit everything in a smoke machine on every shoot you possibly can okay point number 11 is Yes, we all heard the story yesterday. We all read the story. Uh, The Trump administration has now officially opened up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling. They are going to drill the living hell out of this area. It's been protected for over 60 years. It is the last remaining piece of undisturbed wilderness that we have in the United States, and they do not care. They are going to drill it. This was Ryan Zinke, the first secretary of the the, uh, Interior under Trump, who resigned under a myriad of uh, ethics investigations. His primary role, apparently, was to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling. He had to resign, and then came Scott Pruitt, and he was even worse. Well, they just kept chipping away and chipping away and chipping away, and now they have it. Now, here's the thing. I've, I've made a rule. I've made an informal rule. Number one, you have to know what country the area you're going to destroy is in before you can destroy it i'm not sure that donnie knows that it's ours number two you have to be able to find it on a map i'm 99.9 percent sure he could not find alaska on the map i'm 99 percent sure he'd never be able to find the arctic national wildlife refuge on the map and you also have to know that this will not have any real impact on energy independence right which is the same like prudhoe bay stuff that we talked about earlier in the 1980s where everyone's like that's it we don't need any more foreign oil that's not the case This will not be the case. The sad part is there are plenty of people within this administration who know how bad this is going to be because a lot of the people in the administration are hunters and fishermen. And they know what this area represents, and they're sitting there with their mouths closed because there's going to be quite a few people who are going to make some serious money off of this. None of these people have ever been there. You know, to me, it's like our, the president has never been on the dirt in his life. You know, he's the guy that said, let's sweep the forest last year when the, when the uh, fires were happening. So you have a complete and total detachment from the natural world, and there's a lot of people there that have complete and total detachment. All they're looking at is money and saying, look, I can bank a lot of money from this. I'm never going to go there. I don't care. I live in Manhattan. I've never been off the concrete in my life. And that, and, you know, uh, ANWR means absolutely nothing to me. I can get rid, if, if there's a if there's hundred of these, I'm going to get rid of all a hundred of these. I don't really care. One of the intriguing aspects of this to me was highlighted a couple of weeks ago when there was another mine and drilling operation that was that had gained approval in Alaska. And, and Don Jr. tweeted about it and said, you know, maybe we need to rethink this or maybe we need to stop this because he hunts and fishes. And one of the bizarre things about politics in America is how many people vote for a candidate who is who basically um, goes against everything they stand for and everything they love. So it's always mind-boggling to me to see people who hunt and fish being so vehemently vocal in favor of Trump, who's doing nothing but selling off the lands where you hunt and fish and ruining water and allowing drilling and mining and everything else. And here's the thing. It's not that we don't need drilling and mining. We do. If we're going to keep under the current system that we have of, of utilizing the sort of modes of transport and energy, we have to keep creating fossil fuels. But there's a smart way to do it, and there's a dumb, greedy way to do it. And we seem to really specialize in the dumb and greedy way of doing things. And there isn't a single person on the planet who thinks this is a good idea. There isn't anyone, including the mining companies and the drilling companies. They know exactly what they're going to do. It's just like the the groups who are drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, BP, when they had the oil spill. If you, if you, if you had an honesty meter on people and said, you think this is a really good idea? They'd be like, absolutely not. Are you going to be able to keep this clean? Absolutely not. It's the same thing. And I've, I'm reading a book right now about uh, uranium mining on the Navajo reservation in the 50s. So you had, when, the, when we tested the atomic bomb and then dropped two bombs on Japan, the, the Russians immediately began to work on their own bomb. And so there was a, an arms race, which began the beginnings of the Cold War. And one of the materials required was uranium, which at the time was primarily coming out of the Congo. And the American government said, wow, that's 10,000 miles away. There's a million ways of disrupting that supply chain. We better find another way of doing this. And so they found uranium on the Navajo Nation. Now, we love revisionist history here. Everyone in the world does, but Americans love revisionist history. So you'll hear things about like, yeah, you know, we, we, we kind of got over on the Native Americans, but—and then they'll come up with some cockamamie story as to why it wasn't that bad. So all of us are sitting on Native American land right now, regardless of where you are in the United States. That's a factor that always seems to get left out of debates, but that's true. We're all on Native American land. So the Navajo had been, you know, basically raked over the coals many, many times by the American government. And when they found uranium, it started again. It was one of the biggest political, not political, one of the biggest environmental disasters in the history of our country. Uh, The single largest toxic spill in the history of America was not Three Mile Island. It was actually the Rio Puerco here in, in, uh, in the Southwest, where they basically spilled more toxic waste than had ever been spilled in the history of America. They continually denied everything. Um, The court system was corrupt, so when it came close to to basically holding people accountable in the tribal courts, they kicked it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court kicked it down to lower courts, who then turned around and said, okay, there's no admission of guilt, here's a tiny payout, now go away. The EPA, and the bureaucracy of the EPA, kept anyone from being held accountable, and it went on and on and on and generationally, and guess what? It's still going on. So the, the uranium pollution was incredibly bad and the instances and rates of cancer, stomach cancer, kidney problems, leukemia, etc., are just off the charts. All the groundwater has been polluted, and every generation, a new company comes in and tries to pull this stuff out of the ground, claiming that they have a way to do it for real, but when when the screws are put to them, they admit, we don't have a way of doing this clean. We just want the money, we want to mine this, maximize profits, and get out, and we're going to leave the cleanup to somebody else. And that's exactly what will happen with the wildlife refuge. There's just no examples around on scale to prove that they can do what they're claiming to do. So my advice is if you haven't been to a place like this or haven't seen it, do as much research as you can. There's no way for all of us to go up there and see it that would destroy the ecosystem. But just realize what we're missing, right? It ain't coming back when it's, you know, not in my lifetime or your lifetime. It's gonna take even if they if they allow it to be drilled, and then the drilling eventually stops. It will take generations for the land to reclaim itself. And then you have all of the toxicity in terms of, uh, you know, some of the stuff, some of the chemicals they're using to do this stuff is 10,000 years before it starts to biodegrade. So it's pretty nasty and it's a bummer. And uh, I, I don't know what else to say about that. Okay, point number 12, kind of funny. I love listening to the foreign media talking about the coronavirus in America. It is hilarious to me because the foreign media still has an innocence to them. They still have this idea of like, we're trying to do the right thing, right? We're trying to report on this. And they still have one, one foot, toes clinging to this idea of common sense. And they'll do these reports like BBC and there's almost a question at the end of every statement, like, is this really happening? And they'll show footage of, like, you know, Georgia and some school administrator talking, and you're like, oh, God, no. Don't put that person on camera. I love it. If you don't watch foreign media, it's definitely worth watching. One, their reportage tends to be way better than ours, way slower, longer, and more in-depth. And, the, and the, the actual commentary is much more eloquent than what you hear here. Here now, if you turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or anything, it's a train wreck. So watch BBC News and just enlighten yourself. Even if you are diametrically opposed to the BBC or you think that it's some subversive left-wing institution, watch it anyway and just watch it for the speech, the length of their their, uh, segments— and the depth in which they go. I mean, their segments feel like movies compared to ours, which is like two seconds of, you know, oh my God, a COVID outbreak, and then, oh, our, our anchor has a new dog, and then they give them equal time. They don't do that over there. They like it's actual news and it's actual in depth, which is kind of cool. And if you haven't seen it in a while, I think you'll dig it. Okay. Uh, oh, I just want to mention this before. I talked about AG23 and the shipping sh- shipping situation. One of the Best, most creative, most original photographer, slash writer, slash tech guy, slash web guy I've ever seen recently launched a new book. And his books are, are absolutely incredibly beautiful and really well done. His photography is is super solid, but it's not my favorite photography in the world. But it's good. And he is like as well rounded as a creative as anyone I've ever seen. He launched a new book. And then he went on Twitter and he posted about shipping and he was talking about shipping costs and using tracking and saying, I'm never going to ship a book without tracking, but I've had so many complaints about international shipping. And he said, Amazon has inured us to this idea that shipping is free. And when people actually have to then pay for something with real shipping, they're just freaked out by the cost. And this is something I've run into for um, 10 and a half years at Blurb is people complaining about shipping costs. With no understanding of what it requires to ship to 70 countries around the world, more than 70 countries. That is like a full-time job for one person doing nothing but re-navigating that playing field every single day, all day long. Shipping costs are expensive, and here's the thing. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. So yes, free shipping on Amazon does inure us to the idea that we have to actually pay for shipping from time to time, but I found it, I found it comforting in some weird way that he was having the same issues. Because I get it all the time of people just saying, well, why can't you do this? And you should do that. And well, my mom did this. Or I sent one package here this way, and it was only this much. And I'm like, okay. So scale that up to an absolute international organization, multiple formats, all the different uh, restrictions and customs and, and tariffs and everything else around the world. So it shipping is so monumentally complex. I kind of equate it on the photographer scale to color management. Color management is so complicated, um, and I've sat through week-long, I'm not kidding, five days in a row, eight to five, five days, eight to five in a row on color management and walked out of there and still had no idea what they were talking about. I just wanted to like never talk to a human being again. So I kind of equate shipping with the same thing. All right, last point, um, and this is uh, pretty interesting. A friend of mine in New York wrote me and said a buddy of his had just come down with Lyme disease. If you're going in the woods anywhere from the Northeast, so New England area, over to sort of the western side of the Great Lakes, and you're going in the summer, you better have a battle plan. So I would never go camping in New York right now, or Connecticut, or uh, New Hampshire, or Maine in the summer right now, unless I had shaved my entire body, and at the end of every Every sort of you know three-hour period, I stripped naked and had someone inspect every inch of my body. The tick situation is horrible right now. It is incredibly bad. The winter is not killing them off like they used to. They are carrying so many more diseases than they were a few years ago, and the number of cases is exponentially beyond what anyone is talking about. So there were a couple new articles that came out recently about a potentially uh, fruitful Lyme vaccine that might be relatively close. Let me just be the first to tell you those articles were total BS. They were using the same data that the CDC has been using for 20 years, which are completely inaccurate. And I really think that those articles are meant to prop up this idea that the CDC, because here's the thing. you can't. If, if Lyme disease is only 30,000 cases a year, this is a very basic question that no one seems to be able to answer, except for my friends who used to work in pharma who laugh and tell me exactly why this is. If CDC says there's 30,000 new cases a year, okay, they've been saying that for 25 years. It's the same thing. When I got it in 2014, it was the same news article that came out last week. Same thing, same stats. It's all inaccurate. It's a lie, and it's meant to cover up how bad the situation is. Why, if there's 30,000 cases a year, are you building a vaccine? Just answer that. What other disease on earth has 30,000 cases and you're building a vaccine? that's an orphan drug. That's not supposed to happen. You know why they're building a vaccine? Because there are millions of people that have this disease. It is the most misdiagnosed disease in the world. It is incredibly debilitating. And oh, by the way, there are a lot of other vector-borne diseases that ticks are carrying, Powassa and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, these articles that come out, I think in part that they're they are they're created by the pharmaceutical industry. They're created by the Centers for Disease Control and the propaganda machine that keeps people from understanding how bad it is. Um, everybody seems to have a friend or a family member or friends of friends that have Lyme. I get bombarded every week from emails, calls, texts from people saying, hey, can you talk to my cousin? He got it, or my cousin's kid has it, or... You know, this person has it. Um, people are writing me from all over the world. This is a global problem. There is not thirty thousand cases a year. It's exponentially beyond that. The treatments are arcane. They don't have a good protocol. Antibiotics are not as effective as they once were. So, the key element to take away from this point is uh, make sure you tick check at the end of every single day. You know, the 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 data suggests that a tick needs to be on you for x amount of time before. They can basically deliver their evil little payload. They also have a a numbing agent in their saliva that keeps you from feeling when you've been bitten, which is, you know, they are the perfect weapon. They are a remarkable little machine. So if you are going into the wild, make sure that you are doing a thorough tick inspection at the end of every day. And I mean thorough, let's talk about, like, imagine going into prison, right? Okay, let let me paint this picture for you. Let's say, for example... You're on a bender. Let's say that you buy a 30-pack of Mickey's Big Mouth malt liquor, and you drive to the top of a parking garage in Corpus Christi, Texas with your brother. And you decide, hey, we're going to go to a reggae concert later where we know one of the members of the band. Why don't we drink a 30-pack of Mickey's malt liquor at the top of this parking garage and then go to the concert? And then your brother looks at you and says, Jesus, that's a great idea. I can't believe you thought of that. Let's do it. And so you proceed to do that. Now, let's say you may or may not have ended up on stage at the concert and had no memory of that the following day. But let's say that you also did something that night that's unspeakable, that maybe is a, is would keep, could be you know considered a crime. And let's say that you ended up getting arrested, and let's say that you ended up going to jail. Now, part of this story is true. This jail part is not. But the rest of it, well... I'll let that, uh, I'll let you, I'll leave that up to you. So let's say that you went to jail and the, the guys at the jail are like, look, you're going in, right? There's no bail. There's no bond. You're caught dead to rights. So here, here's the entry process, which is take off all your clothes. And you're like, that sounds bad to begin with. And now you're in a room full of strangers and you're the only one that's naked and they're wearing rubber gloves. That's also not a good sign. Anytime you find yourself in a room and even one person is wearing a rubber glove, you want to leave immediately. But now you can't because you're at county, and so the guy's like, "Okay, bend over." And now comes the um, sort of the amateur proctologist hour. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a Lyme inspection. You cannot hide parts of your body from Lyme, and I'm, I'm and I need to be serious here for a second. I'm actually serious about that because ticks are famous for, you know, going between your fingers or between your toes or finding like, you know, behind your knee. They're, they're amazing creatures that find like the most vulnerable parts of you to bite and infect. And the other thing you have to do is go through your hair, the hair on your head. You really have to go through because tons of people are bitten on the head and they don't realize it because they can't see it. And this is basic protocol. Believe it or not, I know a lot of people living in the United States who live in these areas that are high-tick areas. And this this transcends across the country. Northern California is particularly bad. The Rockies are bad. We have them here in New Mexico. Um, anywhere where there's deer, there's deer mice, deer ticks, et cetera, black-legged deer ticks. The Northeast is is the hot zone. I know plenty of people who go out and at the end of every day have a complete, thorough tick inspection. They wash with special shampoos and everything to keep... Uh, the ticks away. It's really something to do. Take my word for it. I lost about five and a half years of my life. Um, I'm still not a hundred percent. I still have little episodes where I fall in and out of the Lyme thing, which I'm guessing will happen for the rest of my life. But um, I feel pretty lucky to be at the state that I'm at now, but it definitely has really impacted my body. I think that I, just the treatments alone, see, I'm choking up the treatments alone damaged my body. My voice, apparently. I think I've been on the phone for five hours today. I think I'm losing my voice. Probably a good time to end this podcast, especially when I'm talking about bending over in a county jail. How did I fall so far? This podcast started out so promising and now I'm talking about county jail. Yeesh. Oh, by the way, I photographed in county jails. I have not photographed that particular scene, but I've photographed enough to know, and I've photographed in prisons, I don't want to go there and you shouldn't either. Let's be good people, let's be smart, and let's get through the current craziness together, and we'll come out of this better and smarter and with a good sense of humor. Adios.